Hello and welcome from Montreal where the 69th annual CFA Institute conference has just ended. Now the final keynote speaker was my guest today, Sir Bob Geldof. Hi John. Thanks very much for joining me. You have been on quite a remarkable journey from uh, charity in the form of Band-Aid and the Live Aid concerts, then through campaigning for debt relief with the Live Aid concerts and Make Poverty History. Now you're involved with the Eight Miles Fund, which is investing through private equity. How do they fit together and how did you make that journey? Uh, they fit together in, in the aid v trade argument, um, which is, uh, doesn't work at all. It's, um, it is aid and trade and one begets the other and, um, and eliminates uh, the first one ultimately. Uh, and it's, um, it's self-evident, I mean, if you encounter poverty at the egregious level that I, that I met at in the mid-80s, um, rapidly you understand that the only way to avoid this happening in the future is uh, economic growth. And endlessly we've seen that again. So it's, it's very boring for me and my colleagues to be lectured by economists who, you know, uh, write books on our backs sort of saying, they're all wrong, it's all about trade, you know, and all that, hello, you know. And um, so uh, I just decided to ultimately do both, um, mainly the latter because uh, the world was uh, economically expanding at an exponential rate and this one continent was being left out. So really, obviously I'm not an, a, a financier, um, so all I can do is draw attention to something mm. and uh, I can market things and I could market the idea of Africa being an, uh, an investment hotspot and um, some people bought into that and said well why don't you, we'll put the money behind you to do it and I wasn't interested in it. Uh, but they were right, I became very interested in it, um, mainly because you can see as transformative as aid and debt relief is, so too business on top of that is the ultimate transformation. Those families, not just the individuals, are never going back. And of course that was evident from the get-go, but it took a while f um, for, me to, for me to arrive at that point and for the world to be interested in that argument. Okay, now let's talk about the investment case, which is what most of the people at the conference were, yeah. were bothered about. Africa, as far as your average investment professional concerned, is this blank space yeah. on the map. People almost forget that it's there when they're talking about geopolitics. What is the key argument? How can you sell Africa as an investment proposition? What's the top-down reason why you should think there may actually be money to be made by making these kinds of investments that can raise living standards there? Because as you say, it is a tabula rasa, it's blank slate. Yeah. You're going from very little investment to rapidly increasing investment. And the turnaround moment came when China started investing heavily in infrastructure there to power their own boom through the, raw, raw, the resource of Africa. It is the resource mother load of the planet. Whatever you think about the Saudis, etc., that's it. I mean, only a couple of years ago, British Gas found more gas off Tanzania than in Qatar, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, so that's just one example. I mean, we can give the, the percentage figures of how much of the world commodities actually reside there, unexploited. So that's the base of it. Now China needed that. So it started building the infrastructure to take that out to f feed its own boom. And um, 
uh, that people began to look then, hold on, we're going to China and China's going to Africa, we should look at Africa. Some smart people started doing that. Now Chinese labour costs are too high, so the Chinese are actually investing in industry in Africa, having built a lot of the infrastructure. And so you're getting this sort of virtuous loop. And if the government is coherent enough, then what should you, and has the capacity to govern, then you begin to get growth, some extraordinary growth in some of the countries. And remember, half the problem of us talking like this is that people, as you say, view Africa as an undifferentiated whole. In fact, it's 54 countries of from tiny size Cape Verde or Togo to the size of Europe, Congo. So, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond enormous and it's Populate fastest growing population in the world. There'll be 2.2 million, a billion uh, by I think what is it, 20, 30 or 50 or something. Most of those kids. So you've got this demographic boom. They they'll all want um, you know uh, employment. You will get the cities which are expanding rapidly, fastest urbanising continent in the world, fastest growing middle class. Yes, as I said at the time, they want education and health and water and sanitation etc. But being kids. Having these phones, the largest mobile market in the world, having these phones, they see what everyone else wants, and they want that too. So you get, you see now Walmart going in, I think, spending two billion on, um, you know, uh, supermarket chains and stuff like that. That's not going to stop Pepsi or in there growing chickpeas. Why? To make smoothies for the American market. It's extraordinary what's happening. Okay. Now, why are we not harnessing it more already? One of the questions that kept coming up when uh, delegates were passing questions to me was about corruption. There is perception that Africa is more corrupt even than the States, even than Asia. Is corruption a critical impediment to getting progress done, to, to inputting money to work? In some countries it is, but it's, it's, it's far less on a continental and a percentage <coughs> basis than, let's say, Southeast Asia, where it's about 11% of GDP. These are old figures, but about 11% of GDP... China famously was 13% before Xi cracked down. I don't know what it is now. Um, but uh, And then, you know, the cost to America of uh, double reversion taxes and stuff like that, staying offshore, the loss of jobs, etc. So if we take all that as a global picture of... Uh, of corruption that continentally Africa is about six percent now in some countries as far in fact in some countries that's all it's all right. uh, Angola would be one where the people 17 million people are extremely poor yet it's it's one of the richest countries in the world in fact during the crisis amazingly Angola was lending the old colonial master money Portugal um, uh, as I said it's odd that like Luanda is a, is the most expensive a real estate in the planet on a shoreline, but only only max two hundred people benefit from this. Uh, the Dos Santos family, you know, control everything. The son runs the sovereign wealth fund, or the daughter, one of them. The daughter is a load of other stuff. Um, that that would be one. On the other hand, you get Ethiopia, which as a government are you know pretty clean as far as I can determine, and I, I know them pretty well. Um, um, but because of Chinese and Indian business models who write a certain payoffs into their, into their plan, um, at a low level, corruption is entering and filtering into the culture. That needs to be stopped. So, for example, your transformer is waiting in the warehouse, but there's 20 people ahead of you. So maybe you could get yours delivered in a week for you know, stuff. In a state where the police only get lunch and a uniform, right. um, then you'll get held up. 
and like like the Congo for example they just step into your car in the endless traffic jams and you know they ask you for some cash and it's humiliating for them at a roundabout in Kinshasa I met a girl who was a uh, chemistry graduate and she had her smart dark blue uniform yellow hat yellow cravat she was a she was a, a, an MA in chemistry and she had to be a policewoman on this roundabout with 10 other policemen just the cars were snailing around she opened the door and got in and asked for cash now you know thing is or i'll pull you over sort of thing but that's how that's right. pathetic the congo has got 28 trillion dollars in the ground but we keep talking about extractive industries and resources only 25 percent of the continental economy is resources the rest is proper stuff proper stuff it's on the move it's growing it needs all the consumer stuff that's possible and it's reinventing a different type of economy and therefore politics through these folds indeed we all are we just haven't realized that yet let's now talk about the specifics of the eight miles fund which has yeah. been up for a few years now we've identified agriculture and consumer as big areas of opportunity let's talk about what kind of opportunities have you found in agriculture what have you invested in um, we've got um, a beef company uh, in South Vadis called uh, Verde Beef, and um, we it's to grow um, a large herd of cattle for export. So the plan is by the end of next year we'll be exporting about a hundred million dollars worth um, uh, of, of beef, largely to the to the to the Middle East. But um, from my point of view, and so this is where you get the activist person as opposed to the activist investor. This is fantastic because Ethiopia is the ninth largest cattle export, um, uh, breeder in the world, but its beef is at a very low quality, so it only uh, you know, takes about a third of, of what Brazil and New Zealand get per kilo for their beef. So we need to upgrade that and the skills to do that and the land around it. And so, yes, while we're, while we're employing lots of people, the benefits that extend out through the family go on and on and on, and that's what I'm interested in, to be honest with you. So the, the partners... In, in, in the company. They're interested in making cash. That's their job. And of course, the GPs are looking at them and saying, you know, where's the date? My thing is I'm interested in seeing what this stuff, what this money stuff can do and jobs can do. So the pride thing I've seen in the wineries we have, we have 500 hectares of vineyards in a beautiful part of the world. The River Awash runs through it. We've got two wineries in Addis. And um, we, we planted, we, there was 80 acres, 90, 90 hectares planted. We're, we've doubled that. We've doubled the workforce. Again, the thing I like. Um, all the management now are nearly all Ethiopian in the space of 18 months. And so that skills transfer, that ability, that, so how, do, how do you work a company? Because they didn't, they didn't have it before. They didn't have that knowledge before. Once you have it, of course they're skilled, of course they're talented, of course they're intelligent. That's it for me. The bank in Uganda, the chickens. Agriculture is the basis of all the total African economy across the board, not resources, agriculture. Agriculture is the, is the growth area. But power and infrastructure are an impediment. For example, it costs um, 10 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity in New York City. It costs 12 cents in London per kilowatt hour. For the average peasant northern Nigerian woman, it's $10 per hour. Two final questions I'd like to ask. First, a very, maybe quite a personal one. How close, are you actually doing any business in the precise area where Michael Burke made that classic report on the famine in Ethiopia that, uh, that sparked, sparked Band-Aid? Are you actually working in the area that was once most 
most afflicted by famine? No, because that area is still affected by great drought. Uh, El Nino and climate change have really hit over the last 18 months. So 10.2 million people are affected by I saw a lot of malnourished new babies and their mothers don't have milk. However, because of the, to the point about aid, the solidity of the state has allowed them, it buckled before. Now it's accepted a million refugees from Somalia because of Al-Shabaab, the Al-Qaeda offspring, and the war there into their frontiers. So imagine Germany accepting a million Syrian refugees and the problems it's caused. The Ethiopians have accepted a million over its border and I've been in the camps and they're dealing with it. They're now dealing with, imagine Germany in North Germany dealing with 10.2 million people um, suffering malnutrition. They're dealing with it. Yes, with food aid from the United States, the UK and the EU. And yes, they need seed to plant for next year or else we're going to have a big problem. But in Mekele, which was the big town in the region, which I visited first as a war zone, that's really booming. And there's an industrial park going in there. Now the guy behind the industrial policy, a guy called Arkaby, he was the ex-mayor of Addis, is a very smart PhD. He's the economic advisor to the Prime Minister. And he's written, and if you're very interested, you can read Industrial Policy in Africa. I've read it because he's a friend. It doesn't sound like a Boomtown Rats album, right? Industrial <laughs> well, Policy on. in Africa. Check yeah. out the new one. It's right, a right, concept right, album. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and, you know, they've really looked, they've spent three years studying the whole world. And anyway, so they're, they're building these things. McKellie has got a university of 30,000 kids now. They're, you know, they're building this industrial park, which already has got Korean, Japanese, Indian, Chinese and American um, uh, people moving into it. The first one is going to be in a town called Owasa. It's already sold out totally. Right. And, and this is all happening in where Michael Burke discovered no, the hell on earth. No, uh, McKelly is, is, is the main city in the region. Right. Out in Coram, which is where the famous report yeah. was, um, that's a small little town. There's a bigger town called Sakota, which is still entirely agricultural based. And Coram will remain a small yeah. town. I mean, you know, Band-Aid and um, with other people's money built a big hospital there which just opened a couple of years ago and I was there last week. And it's great because um, 60,000 people go through every year, very smart doctors, two surgeons, great, uh, it's, it's really serious and proper. And uh, so you see that and you think, that's mad, I watched telly one day and there's this. But similarly, I spoke at a conference in China one day and here's these jobs and this winery and this beef thing or the bank in Uganda. It's bonkers, you know. So the, that, but what, what is good to know at any rate is that the, the, the first episode of aid has had a positive very positive impact on the region that uh, the first episode of the 80s with you know the um, banging the drum so Burke let us know what was happening yeah. and Band-Aid and USA for Afghan Live Aid beat the drum and it created such a furore of international goodwill that you could build a political constituency for change and so then you began to see people really seriously thinking how do you correct this abomination how does you know so many extremely poor how do you how do you get them going so with china the first triumph of our century of course was the lifting of 400 million people out of extreme poverty through trade uh, and then you saw the collapse of the world economy because of the poor because of the onerous uh, behavior of the banks you know you know and the poor simply not being able to 
pay the banks back. Uh, but you saw the poor getting us out of that mess, the poor in China producing stuff at a cheap enough price we could buy and keep the whole thing turning. But that was only that was only possible because of the poor in Africa giving them their extractive industries, those resources to power the Chinese, which allowed us to breathe again. So I don't understand why I have to be an economist. It's all seems pretty Right. dull gruel to me but it's pretty straightforward and the model works it's just you know um, and it works particularly well if you go in with one professionals who really know what they're doing who know the groundwork and also with an idea behind it that essentially one you have to give as much money back to the investors as possible to prove the model for a start two to allow everyone to make a living but three to improve the stand, the, the the quality of life and of the people who work for you, to skills transfer, which they're eminently capable of doing, and to build capacity for a country to be able to breathe, so this so it doesn't happen again. This is very very inspiring. One final, very nuts and bolts question. The bottom line: How much money is Eight Miles making so far? How good a success story do you have in? Well, we haven't made a sale yet. Right. Um, and again, you know, uh, you know, stand uh, warned, like you know, to anyone thinking of going in. Did you have an, an estimated IRR? Then? Yeah, estimated, like you know, um, somewhere between twenty and twenty-five percent. I'd say if you were looking at it now, we made a say we make twenty percent. I would say, but given the scale, the advancement of these businesses by our by the investment, I mean. Just in the wineries, we're putting in a new carbonated line, and we already know, we're selling a hundred percent. 100% of what we produce. We've got constraints because we're having to plant out the vineyards, we're having to import corks and bottles, um, and there's a constraint on that. We're using 40, 30 year old bottles because people, if you were a kid, do you remember giving back a bottle of lemonade yeah. and you get, so that's what they do. And you know, before we brought in mechanization, they were washing the bottles and sticking the labels on. So there's still, we, we brought all that in, we're now selling at full capacity, we could sell more, we're doing a carbonated plant, that'd be a whole other branch of activity. The market's there, the same is true of the beast, the same is true of, you know, everything. Everything. I mean, so I would be disappointed. Right. I mean, I push like crazy and they go nuts. But there are huge constraints, you know. So I would say, am I being conservative? Yeah, probably. But, you know, or maybe not 20% now. But I would be very disappointed if at the end of the day it isn't north of 25 IRR. Very disappointed. But I let you know, like, I mean, that's it, you know. The FT will be writing it up in due course. Yes, it will. And I mean, I will be totally upfront about it. I, we'll have to do a one or two sales be, before fund two. And I really want to do fund two. Now Now I've got the bit between my teeth. Nothing to do with, like, any money I make. I just want to do this. And uh, so within the next 18 months, I think we'd have to do a sale or two. But we've still got to cash out. We've still got to buy, I think... Probably three more companies. We've done the due diligence. Looks good. Actually, there's four, but one I think we can pass on. I'm not. I'm not. It's not up to me. It's up to the guys. But there's three that are corkers. I mean, they're complete corkers. And you know, it'd be great to make them just go. Pew. And on that note, we will all look forward to seeing them all go. Pew.
Copyright 2016 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.